Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're jumping into a topic that's a fascinating one. I've never done something in the 20-some years that I've been doing this show looking at, well, a dynamic that we often look at from the other direction. We're going to flip it around today. Some of you are already scratching your heads. What am I talking about? Well, in Indian country and anywhere in the world, there's a whole lot of focus on the younger generations, how adults, how elders impact our youth. But today we want to turn that dialogue, especially as we're speaking about mental health. What can children do that can impact their parents, their grandparents. To me, this is a critical subject. And actually, one of the things that got me thinking about it is a guest who was recently on the program. I invited him to come back. And Jeff Zaremski, I am so glad that you were willing to join us again today. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. For those of you who don't know Jeff, he is the author of a book called Depressed People of the Bible. And although that may not sound like the most compelling book that you just want to pick up off the shelf, it's been generating a lot of uh, of dialogue. I've heard a number of people talking about your book, Jeff. And one of the interesting things to me about this book is you did highlight at least a couple of people who I think exemplify this dynamic of younger generations impacting older generations. So... uh I just find the whole topic interesting. Before we dive into that, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I grew up in America, in New York City, um, with a Jewish family. And uh, in my late teen years, I came to the Lord through a number of circumstances, a number of people influencing. My mother had come to accept the Messiah, and that had an impact on me. And then reading the Bible to actually prove her wrong. I ended up coming to the faith and um, met my wife, uh, also a Jewish believer, and uh, we've been married for uh, oh, a number of, I better not try to remember, but a <laughs> number of happy years, and uh, all of them were happy years, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm living in Florida now. Very good. Well, Jeff, uh, for those who are you know tuning in, they're saying, okay, it's an interesting guest, Jewish background, he's become a Christian, and the reason... T- that context to me is so significant is because we're going to be talking about some of these stories. And for those of you listeners that don't have uh, uh, really any affinity at all to these uh, religions that have descended from Abraham, if you want to use that commonality, uh, maybe you are a First Nations person. Christianity, Judaism to you is just something that someone else brought and tried to impose on your tribe or people in your region. Uh, we're not here to try to uh, take any particular religious position as we talk about this topic. It's looking at mental health and some of these fascinating stories that have honestly found themselves into just about, well, every discussion in America when you speak about 
characters in antiquity, it seems like you can't go anywhere without people knowing about Joseph or the Prince of Egypt and whether they relate to a, a Disney story or a Bible story. The story of Joseph is just so compelling, and you feature it in your book that you call Depressed People of the Bible. Now, I know, Jeff, as I give that lead-in, some people are saying, well, was Joseph depressed? Do you want to help us uh, kind of first break that yeah, down? Yeah, and, and that's why he's in there, because he is the undepressed, right? <laughs> he is a perfect example of someone who went through tremendous tragedy from his childhood, being rejected by his brothers, uh, um, some battles with his parents between because he actually had uh, a mother and three stepmothers all at the same time mm -hmm. and that interaction and, and favoritism which you know could be good but end up we're being bad I mean it's never good but I mean to that person you might feel like the favorite and you think well hey that was good but it ended up working so much against him and stirring up the brothers hatreds against him where he's then attempted to be killed he's by his brothers then he's sold as a slave and you know, then in the desert country as a young, probably teenager, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, separated from all his support network, his, his loving father and his loving mother, and then uh, as a slave in a foreign land, uh, and then falsely accused of a crime he didn't do, thrown into prison uh, for a long time. It's probably over 20 years between the, the slavery part and the prison part. Then he has an opportunity to get out of prison and he tells, interprets someone's dream for them and they go back to their job before the Pharaoh says, remember me? And that guy goes two years without remembering him. So talk about disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, heartache, you know, rejection, um, broken promises, um, being, uh, you know, forsaken. And then even when he gets to this position, he gets out of the Pharaoh, you know, through the miracle of the whole Joseph story. Even then, when he is Pharaoh's right-hand man and he's married, the Bible says that he was not able to eat with the Egyptians hmm. because he was a foreigner. <laughs> he is you know, second to the whole nation, or the most powerful nation probably then in the world, and he can't eat with them. So he's alone. No, I mean, this is an, it's an amazing story. And of course, uh, like, like we said earlier, it's been told many times. And I think the story resonates on so many levels. Uh, especially when we're talking to First Nation peoples who have seen so much oppression. Uh, Joseph experienced that. Uh, people who've seen things uh, happening within people that should be friendly to them. Like you mentioned here, even when Joseph has done so much for the nation, he's still in this position of someone who's not really treated as a full-class citizen or first-class citizen, whatever term you want to use. I think the storyline definitely resonates whether someone thinks the Bible is just an interesting storybook or whether they think it is a divinely inspired book. And the dimension we're wanting to take from this is how Joseph then impacts his family, how he impacts his father, because a lot of times our emphasis when we speak about family dynamics is the role of the tribe, the role of the elders, the role of the parents, and how that influences the upcoming generations. But we want to kind of flip that because I think a lot of kids today, and this is just a sense I'm getting, Jeff, I don't know if you've seen this in your neck of the woods, if we can use that uh, designation, but it seems like children today, you know, with the COVID pandemic and 
have almost been labeled as a liability for families. You know, there's pulling parents out of the workplace. They've had to stay at home with the kids and, you know, this burden and the, the children are, are more of a problem. And again, I'm not saying that's uh, been the issue in Indian country by and large, but I think that sentiment has crept into a lot of the dialogue. So help us. How can a young person or a younger adult see themselves as having something to offer to the generations that they look up to? Right. Yeah, that's good. And I guess before we just that kind of tie him to with Joseph, the amazing thing with Joseph is even though he went through all of that, there's and the Bible is so amazing in that it records everything <laughs> that we need to know. It's just an open book about people. Uh, and it never records him being depressed or, or getting upset or angry. I'm sure he had a temptation to and feelings to, but he obviously resisted that and chose to forgive his brothers, chose to overcome it, and chose to hold on to what he ends up saying to them years and years later. You meant this for evil, but God turned it for good for the saving of many people. And he must have been repeating that in his mind all that time. God has a bigger plan regardless of what people do. And the reason I want to bring that back up is because, yeah, as, as we go through oppression, uh, again, the Bible would say if he had, because it tells about David being depressed, tells about Moses being suicidal, tells about Jeremiah being suicidal, uh, Jonah and Elijah. So big names, big people being suicidal and, and depressed. So if, Dave, if Joseph would have experienced depression as a result of all that or been angry, it would have told us. And it doesn't. So there is a way to experience rejection and suffering and still not fall into depression or anger or bitterness or revenge or rage uh, or to vengeance to fight back and take back. And, and there's appropriate ways to deal with it. And Joseph does that. And then one of the things when he does do that and gets this position of finding out that his father is still alive, he immediately sends word to, for him to come to Egypt and to provide for him. A famine is going on in the land, and he makes sure that they're provided for uh, financially. So he's taking care of his elderly father and even his brothers who mistreated him. And, and then he brings them all to Egypt and puts them up in Goshen, uh, one of the best parts of Egypt at that time, and provides for them. I love not only the narrative, but I love the perspective you've taken in your book, Depressed People of the Bible. And a lot of folks that tune in are, again, they're not people that necessarily resonate with the Bible, but you've done something really interesting for those who maybe didn't hear our, our previous interview, and that is you've actually taken a medical framework. I know you drew a lot from Dr. Neil Nedley's depression recovery program and his depression resources that maybe many of the viewers and listeners are familiar with, but you show how each of these stories are really kind of like case studies into different things that you can either do right or do wrong that can help you mentally as we deal with challenges in life, correct? That's right. That's exactly right. So help us a little bit more with Joseph. What kind of secrets did he tap into that might be helpful for us today as we deal with challenges? Sure. Well, one, he kept hope. Right? He kept hope that there is a purpose, there is a plan, there is something beyond this. And he kept on. He never gave up. He, he kept on. He, he was faithful. He kept on working. He worked good in his father's home. When his father asked him to do something, he was obedient. Uh, one of the ways his brothers, when they tried to kill him, was they were out 
in the field far away and the father sent him to go and bring them food and he went obediently to do that and then when he was then sold as a slave he was a good worker even under those conditions and he worked hard and they saw that and Potiphar uh, his owner raised him up to a high position in his household um, and then he, when he's falsely accused and he gets thrown into jail uh, the jailers notice that he's something special about him and they rise him up to a position to to help oversee the prisoners as a prisoner hmm. and and then again when the pharaoh meets him he says who, who else can we put in charge other than someone like this who has the spirit of god and there's no way that those people would have seen the spirit of god and there's no way that those people would have seen this is someone i want to put in charge of my household or in charge of the other prisoners if the whole time he was sitting there saying this is not right i shouldn't be here hmm. the baker forgot me two years now I was thrown into prison unjustly. Potiphar's wife was mean and cruel, and she's a liar. And let me tell you about my brothers also. And they're constantly repeating all their faults and talking that up. There's no way that people would see joy, happiness, peace, leadership. They'd see anger, bitterness, revenge, right? Uh, you know, like the, uh, if you've seen the Muppets, the two guys up in the, the, the angry guys in the Muppets that are, that are heckling everybody. And you just see it in their face, they're unhappy, right? Mm. And, and that would show, and there's no way that they, he, Show the spirit of God. So, so that's some of the things he coped with it by choosing to not uh, to not get bitter and not get angry and not want revenge. Uh, and he chose to forgive. And forgiveness is so crucial and so important. A proper understanding of forgiveness. We have a wrong understanding in a lot of societies of what forgiveness is. I was just talking to someone yesterday going through possibly divorce and, and having a hard time. The concept said, I can't forgive him. He, he did all this stuff. Forgiveness is not an excuse mm. and forgiveness does not release them from the wrong that they did or even the judgment that should be done against them. It, uh, it, it actually exposes the wrong by saying, I forgive you. It means that they did something wrong, but I am not choosing. I'm choosing not to be angry about it. You may have to pay. I'm going to hold you accountable. You may have to go to jail if you did that a crime, if you, you know, ruin my car. I'm going to expect you to pay pay me back for it, make recompense for it. Uh, whether that happens or not, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to choose not to allow your wrong to destroy my peace. And that's what forgiveness is. It's a choice. We do need to talk more about this because I think you've, you've got us thinking about some very important topics. And it clearly ties in not only with the story of Joseph, but with how we deal with those who may have wronged us, maybe even in our own homes, maybe in the home of origin or maybe a home where we were raised. So we're going to be coming back with some really important, really powerful stuff. Jeff Zaremski is my guest. I encourage you to stay by. We'll be right back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. 
Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to today's broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me is Jeff Zaremski. We're speaking about some powerful topics that impact the health of our families. And it doesn't matter where you're at today. It doesn't matter whether you're native, on a reservation, whether you're in an urban area, whether you've never met a Native American. Now, of course, uh, you may not realize you've ever met a Native American, but it's likely you've met quite a few during your lifetime. But my point is simply, this is not an issue that is specific to any culture, to any ethnic group, to any race. But we're talking about challenges that happen in the home. It may come under the umbrella of uh, abuse. And uh, a lot of folks growing up in homes where they're dysfunctional, or it may have been an environment. I know many of you in Indian country, those of you that are up in years, you were forcibly moved to maybe a boarding school, and you suffered uh, abuse there at the hands of, quote, those who were supposed to be caring for you. Jeff, a lot of people with a lot of things in their background where they could say, hey, I, I, I have a perfect right to be angry at what happened to me. How do you interject forgiveness into this dialogue? And is it even appropriate when, you know, there have been some of these even racial atrocities that have been done? Yes, we have a, a statement in society that's a really wrong statement. It says forgive and forget. And they shouldn't be together because we should never forget. Uh, and we can't forget anyway. You know, I mean, we wanted to. But we shouldn't forget because when we're saying we forgive someone, we are saying they did something wrong. That's why we're forgiving them. You don't forgive someone for doing good. You forgive someone for doing bad. Mm -hmm. So they did bad. And we don't want to forget that because we need to be on guard to keep them from ever doing it to us again. 
or to anyone else. And that's why we have to hold them accountable. But at the same time, we're choosing not to get angry and bitter over it. We're just going to deal with it and handle it appropriately and let the proper way for dealing with things, justice to take place. And even if the justice doesn't take place, you know, then that's part of life. Things are unfair in this world and that's unfortunate, but that's where we have a trust in a, in a higher power and a heaven and a divinity and, a, and an eternity where God will work all things out together for good. Um, and so we, we, we deal with being able to forgive by not forget, forgetting and holding them accountable to the best we can and remembering it. So uh, let me see if I'm understanding your emphasis, Jeff, because again, this is a different view of forgiveness than we often hear. If I'm forgiving someone, although there may need to be just recompense or there may need to be some kind of uh, terms that they have to comply with because of the wrong they've done, we're not uh, absolving them of the responsibility that they have for, for perpetrating maybe even a crime. But but I'm not going to harbor ill will. Is that the idea that I'm, I'm still going to? Right. Some people say, can you love a person who hurt you? Now, of course, if it's an intimate person, we're not saying necessarily to move in with the person who tried to kill you, right? Exactly. That's an important point, right? Yes, because a lot of people equate forgiveness with then letting this abuser back into my life because I had to forgive him. And that's not forgiveness. That's codependency. And that is not helpful and that is not good. Um, and so there are times, yeah, we have to put up barriers. We have to put up fences. Uh, and so this, this choosing not to get angry and retaliate, too often what we do almost all the time is we make the matter worse, right? So, so uh, you know, a person cuts someone off on the road, whether accidentally or not, well, the other person gets mad. And so they honk their horn. Well, the other person gets mad. They honk their horn. And so then they speed up and they try and run them off the road. Well, the other person gets mad and throws a tomato at their car. The other guy gets mad, throws a rock at his car. The other guy gets mad and shoots a bullet into the guy's car, you know, and so it escalates. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking, that's why the Bible says eye for eye, equal justice, not a, a head for an eye. That's what we often do. You took out my eye, I'm going to take off your head. Hmm. And that is not appropriate. So putting barriers, so, so choosing to hold them accountable justly, equally, and putting fences and barrier to help keep them from doing it to me again. And now, if they've repented and they've changed and they've truly demonstrated change over a long period of time, then we can choose to allow them still in our lives. But if there's any reason to suspect they might not be, then we need to keep them at arm's length uh, and, and, and not allow them to be able to have the opportunity to hurt us again. We have some Bible examples. Uh, David, uh, who was being chased and harassed by his father-in-law and attempted to kill him. His father-in-law tried to kill him several times. David acted wisely, never retaliated. He had opportunities to kill Saul and he didn't do it. Um, but he kept his distance. He kept away from Saul. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jacob and Esau, um, uh, where Esau is coming at him with men. Now Jacob had wronged, and that's a good example. Jacob had wronged Esau. And so Esau takes that wrong, and instead of trying to bring justice, he, he's going to now slew, slay him and his whole family. So again, escalating it. And Jacob uh, humbly comes to him and, and entreats him and calls him his master, and, and Esau accepts that. But then they still separate ways. <laughs> mm -hmm. They came back, now coming back to the father, respect for the father, they came back for their father's funeral. 
And that was really a loving and reconciling thing to do. But they kept their distance. Uh, and, and there were times with certain people that we need to keep distance uh, so they're not able to hurt us again. So let's come back then with that in mind to the story of Joseph, because we're looking at this whole dynamic, how we're usually thinking the older family members care for the younger. Joseph, of course, in the family order, there's only one younger son of the 12 boys, and he is basically going to be the one who cares for his older siblings as well as for his his father. How does this whole dynamic play out? Because he was, as you summarize the story for us, he was uh, basically sold as a slave by those brothers. They were talking about killing him. How does he come to, to terms with forgiving them? And does he actually, well, require that they show some uh, evidence of repentance? How does it work? Well, yeah, he did. He did require some evidence of repentance. He, <laughs> they, they came for food because there was a famine. So they came for food. He didn't let them know who he was. They didn't rececognize him anymore. He's just now, you know, as an Egyptian and and uh, and he sends them off with food, but he keeps one of the brothers out of the 10 that come for the food. And he says, bring now your youngest brother that you told me about, which is his direct brother, same mother. And so they, he wants to see whether or not they're going to come back for this other brother mm. and whether they're going to, you know, how they're gonna, what they're going to deal with, with the younger brother and how they, so he's testing them. And then they do come back and then, and then he plants a, one of his goblets in, in the youngest brother, his uh, uh, sack, and then he arrests him and he's going to keep him. And, and the brothers come back and say, no, no, you can't do that. We already lost one of our brothers. You can't, you know, please, our dad will die. He'll have a heart attack if, if you do this. And then use that term, but you know, he's going to drop dead mm-hmm. uh, if he doesn't see Benjamin come back. And so he sees there, and they're willing to take me instead. I think it's Judah who says, take me instead. And so he sees their level of repentance. Uh, and then he even hears, because he knows their language. They don't know he's listening in. They're, they're, they're talking among each other. You know, this is all because of the wrong we did to Joseph. It's come back on us. So he sees it, saw a level of repentance. But it is interesting that even after he forgives them, even after he brings them all and showers them with land and food and prospers them, then when their father does die, they say among themselves, uh-oh, Joseph is now going to get at us. He's going to get us back now because he's he'd been holding off because dad was alive, but now he's really going to get us. So they never really accepted hmm. Joseph's forgiveness. They never really forgave themselves. And thus they're still feeling he's going to treat us like we would treat him with revenge, with anger, with bitterness, uh, and not with, with love and acceptance. So he did hold them accountable. He did test mm-hmm. them. He did let them know it was wrong, uh, but he, he did not retaliate. So let's make this maybe even more uncomfortable and maybe even more practical. I mentioned the boarding school experience that many Native youth experienced years ago. Uh, they were forcibly brought to uh, environments where they basically could not speak their native languages, they couldn't identify, you know, as being a First Nations person. Some of those uh, those boarding schools were run by people who claimed to be Christians, and uh, uh, stories that I've heard, many of them, you know, not uh, uh, not being treated the way a good parent would treat their children. So many Native Americans who had that experience, at least that I've rubbed shoulders with, I've gotten the sense that they don't have a good feeling when someone says, you know, I'm a Christian and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here, I want to work with your tribe or, 
you know, want to invite you to, to do something together. This is very distancing. How did, what, what would forgiveness look like in that context, and what are you supposed to learn? Should we generalize that certain uh, religions or races are dangerous? How do we work through all this? Yeah, yeah of course, generalizing is, is always dangerous. I mean, there are certain patterns, uh, so we do need to recognize certain patterns of generalization. You know, uh, uh, there are certain dog breeds that are more dangerous to be around than others, and you wouldn't want to necessarily leave your infant child with a pit bull Especially that they don't know each other, um, you know, than you would with uh, maybe, you know, a Chihuahua or something or a Labrador. Uh, so do we careful, but we still don't judge every individual based on our past experience and based on people groups, right? So we still have to recognize each person individually and test each person and test each each situation. And the bad things in the past was someone else. I remember I started a job. And uh, one of the people there, when they came to know me, they said, oh, no, not another Jeff, you know. So we need to be able to move on. We have to step away just uh, briefly. Jeff Zaremski is my guest. He's the author of the book, Depressed People, the Bible. We're talking about the powerful things that can happen when there is healing in a family, some of the things that can help with that. We'll be back with more right after these messages. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Jeff Zaremski. We're speaking about how family dynamics can be altered by our mental health and how we can impact those in our family as well as those outside our family who may have impacted us in our upbringing. We've been speaking about the example of Joseph and appreciate you, Jeff, for making this point You know, with all the atrocities that have been done over the years to First Nation peoples, uh, yes, there does need to be uh, an understandable suspicion, uh, weariness, concern. But uh, I do appreciate the fact that uh, in my encounters with uh, Native Americans across tribal lines, still an openness to embracing people that are honest, sincere, that really want to work uh, shoulder to shoulder together. But at the same time, uh, you know, we do. We have to we have to be wary in certain situations. So I appreciate those balancing statements. Jeff, let's transition a little bit, though, to another value that's been deeply ingrained in Native American culture, and that is respect for elders. How does that play into this whole dialogue? And do you see it in some of these stories that you highlighted in your book? Yes, I think uh, respect for elders is a very, very important principle. Um, down through the ages. Uh, it's been an honored tradition in, in, in many cultures, uh, in the nation, my understanding, and Oriental cultures and, and Middle East cultures. Uh, you see it in the Bible from the beginning. People were named, right? Uh, where you have someone, you know, Yosef ben David, right? So son of David, mm. right? So it's always acknowledging this, I'm the son of, and it's, it's looking in the, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your mother and your father, right? So there's there's this principle, but today we seem to be seeing that eroded away in American culture uh, and for some time now. Cartoons like Bart Simpson, where the parents are bad and the kids are you know, obnoxious to the parents. And, and even back to the Peanuts, uh, Charlie Brown, uh, which was a very you know, nice and seemingly wholesome cartoon and basically was. But when you think about it, it was all children. And the only time you heard an adult whether it was a parent or a teacher, they had this wonk, wonk, wonk noise. That was their voice. <laughs> so the parent is nothing but a noise, wonk, 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 wonk. Uh, and it's just the children's, you know, Charlie Brown and everyone is in control. Uh, and that's kind of like maybe subconscious that the parents really just are noise speakers. Uh, uh-huh. But our, our adults, our parents, they have years of experience. Uh, often they've demonstrated some type of love, hopefully, towards us. They changed our diapers. They, they fed us. They provided for us when we couldn't fend for ourselves. And we shouldn't forget them. And maybe they've made some mistakes, maybe some very bad mistakes, but there still should be an honor and a respect for them that they went before us, that paved the way, again, even with their mistakes, and to take care of them in their old age. You know, Questions of whether Social Security will be there very long or how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is this, you know, real fears of this generation forgetting and not honoring and respecting uh, our elders. So I think clearly as we talk about the impact that the younger generations can have on the older, one is this whole dynamic of of caring for them, at least in older age. 
But this whole dynamic of respect, how does it play in from your vantage point into the whole dimension of mental health, especially as it impacts the parents and the grandparents? And whether you want to draw that from one of the the stories that you highlight in in your book, Depressed People of the Bible, or whether you want to approach that from a different perspective, I'm good either way. Yeah, I think it affects both sides, right? Because if if we're not respected after we've done all this for them, again, changing diapers from their youth and and demonstrating love all these years, if we're not respected, that can be very hurtful. Uh, Mm. And when that happens, we need to find our comfort and our respect and our love from other sources, God, primarily and you know and, and other things friends we can uh but ideally when it comes from those that we that we helped um it is best and and then the, the others when we're not respecting those who benefited us then we're really disrespecting ourselves hmm. right because we had come from these parents these grandparents these generations this this tribe this family this nation and when we're disrespecting our origins we are disrespecting ourselves and putting ourselves down. And then that lays a, uh, a heavy negative uh, subconscious upon ourselves that uh, that will bite us in the end. Reminds me of a fellow, I'll just call him uh, George, of course, not his real name. And George was, uh, by his own admission, he had mental health issues, raised a number of children. And if you were to meet George today, I mean, he seems to be a guy that sincerely loves his kids. But he he says, you know, I I was struggling with my mental health and I didn't treat my kids right. And I know as far as his his mental health today, it's clearly adversely impacted because he says, you know, my kids won't have anything to do with me. I try to reach out to them. They don't want to talk to me. So to me, this is a, a situation where it really brings up a lot of these issues you're talking about. I mean, on one hand, we're saying the children should forgive the parent, but there might be still some accountability. But how about when you know mental illness is part of the equation? These things are messy. And of course, in the story that we started on with this, the story of Joseph, we don't have any indication that Jacob, his father, was mentally ill, do we? No, no, not, not in that story. Uh, but we do say that he showed respect and Jacob did make mistakes. And Joseph still respected his father. Mm-hmm. And Jacob respected Isaac and they respected Abraham. And, you know, Abraham, son of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Right? We always see them together. Uh, and so there was this lineage held on to. Mm-hmm. Another thing would be that when when Jacob's getting old, Joseph invites Jacob to come in and bless his two sons. And that, again, is significant. He's showing, Dad, I respect you. I love you. I mm. want your blessing upon my kids, your grandkids. I want you to show love to them. I want you to pronounce goodwill upon them. And and Jacob does that. He comes and, and pronounces that we see this generational, three generations there together and knit and bound together in heart and mind. So we've been speaking about the example of Joseph. Of course, the Creator uses him to, to spare his family, we could say, even though he'd been mistreated by them years before. Uh, we're talking about these lessons of forgiveness and respect. There's another story that you highlight in your book. It has uh, maybe a darker side. Maybe it's not darker. I mean, some bad things happened to Joseph, but at least darker as far as one of the protagonists in the story, uh, Naomi, is uh, is this woman who's extremely depressed in the book of Ruth. Tell us a little bit about that story and then the impact of the next generation, if you will, her daughter-in-law, Ruth. 
Yeah, the, the part where she's depressed, she even tells her friends, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. <laughs> mm. Call me bitter. Wow, how would you like that for a name? So she was just in a bitter state because uh, years prior, uh, they had moved from Bethlehem, Israel uh, to the country of Moab. And while she's there, her two sons die and her husband dies. Actually, I think in the other order, I think her husband dies and then her two sons die. And that is a tough thing to take. Um, the death of, of course, a spouse is very hard, but the death of a child is very, very grieving upon people. Um, in at least uh, English society, English language, we have a term for someone who loses their wife, um, a widow. We have a term for someone who loses their husband, a widower, right? Uh, unless I have that backwards. <laughs> but uh, we have a, a term for someone who loses their parents. They're an orphan. Right? But we don't have a term for someone who loses their child or children. We don't have a term for it. We don't have a name to, de- to delineate you are. Uh, and maybe that's because it's so unspeakable. Hmm. We can't even come up with a name for it. We can't even come up with a term. For it. We don't even want to. We don't even want to identify that because it's so a horrendous thing to think that that could happen, even though unfortunately it does sometimes. And so it's such a hard grief for a parent to lose a child. And whether that's, again, through loss of uh, death or a loss of uh, separation because they were taken away or loss because of a broken relationship mm. and the child, children not wanting to communicate anymore. So there's a lot of hurt and pain with that. And it's a very deep pain that comes from that. And that's what Naomi was experiencing. Now, she did have two daughter-in-laws because before mm-hmm. her, her sons died, they married two Moabite women, and that's where Ruth comes in. And uh, and so she does have them, but she was very sorrowful and, and, and bitter at that point after her two sons died. So basically, we're talking about how younger generations can affect those who've gone before them. Naomi is, as you painted the picture, in a foreign land. Some of you tuning into the show today, you may be relating to that. Maybe you're a First Nation person living in uh, an urban area, and you don't know many uh, Native Americans in the region of the country that you find yourself in. Uh, you don't have a, a tribal health center or some or people that you can congregate around who you say, these are uh, from my nation. I'm in a foreign nation. Others may be tuning in. You are uh, a transplant. Uh, you were born in some other country beside the United States, and you're here listening to this story. So, Jeff, as I'm hearing this, it wasn't just that she was in a foreign nation. You mentioned all this heartache, losing her husband, losing her boys. As the story plays out, then she's going to go back to Israel, but she actually gets to the point of discouraging her daughters-in-law, who both seem to love her, uh, not to go with her. Can you help us understand why would someone who's already depressed and in need of support, why would they cut off their own support network? Yes, and there could be two, maybe maybe many reasons, but I could think of two possible reasons. One, maybe out of love and concern for the daughter-in-laws, you might not be accepted back where I'm going, and it's a different culture, you'll be leaving mm-hmm. your parents, and so maybe stay here, you know, in your home uh, country. And so that could be one reason. But another reason could be that we see this when we're depressed, uh, we end up pushing away the very ones who are trying to help us. Mm. And and then we complain, no one cares about me. Right? So, so they called, they wrote, they emailed, and we don't respond, or we hang up, or we say, no, I don't want to talk right now. And 
we go into our cave, we go into our room closet and, and hide ourselves and shut ourselves off and don't go to the congregations and, and don't respond to the calls. And then, and then again, we then feel like, well, no one's contacting me when people did try mm-hmm. to reach out. And so it could have been that. It could have been her pushing okay. away the very ones. I'm bitter, I'm sorrowful, and I just can't deal with it. And I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want anyone asking how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and the pushing away the ones we're meeting at that time. And I think this is one of the hardest things for me, Jeff. I'll just be honest with you. If someone says they don't want my help, they don't want me around, I want to be an accommodating person. I want to listen to them. But in this story, the turning point really in the story, if you want to say turning point, it's where Naomi sends Ruth and Orpah, her you know fellow sister-in-law, back to their homes. Orpah leaves, but Ruth is not going to go. And we want to break that down a little bit as we come to our next segment. But before we step away, Jeff... I know there's a lot of folks who are excited about what you're doing. They're interested in your book. Tell us how we can connect with you. Sure. Okay. So uh, there's a website that, uh, that I direct that has a lot of sermons and stuff, and it has a contact us uh, link. And so that's shalomadventure.com. So they can find me there, shalomadventure.com. We have the Depressed People of the Bible book there. They can get it at lots of other bookstores as well, but they can get it directly from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, at also Very good. We're going to step away just briefly. We'll be right back and we'll be talking about, well, some powerful messages as we wind up our edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they shall often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions... They just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers, sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends. So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, We just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age, the physical and mental health effects, 
poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. This is our final segment of today's show. Jeff Zaremski, the author of the book, Depressed People of the Bible, has been giving us practical insights for people who are well, concerned about their elders, concerned about making an impact on those who were supposed to be caring for them, maybe didn't do all that good a job. Jeff, uh, challenges in homes throughout the world today. We've been talking about some of these amazing stories that resonate with people, whether they are Bible believers or not. We've been talking most recently about Naomi, a woman who lost her husband, lost her two sons, and now we're involved in this drama she's sending her daughters-in-law back but ruth well does she honor her mother-in-law or does she dishonor her by refusing to do what naomi's asking yeah and she steps in and uh, after her sister-in-law goes back to her family and back to her hometown ruth says no i will not leave you i will not forsake you where you will go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, that's where I want to die also. I mean, it's just a very, very powerful, passionate bond and statement, strong statement. I will not let you go. I will not leave you. I'm not forsaking. I'll be here with you. I'm going with you, Ty. You know, almost like a marriage. And we do say it at some weddings, uh, you know, for better or for worse, till death do us part. And that was very powerful, respectful, and stepping out of her birth family comfort zone and willing to go with Naomi and go to Naomi's home country. Well, I think it brings up so many interesting dynamics, Jeff, because we've been talking about this whole attitude of respecting your elders. Here's a story of a woman who the only, quote, elder who she is identifying with at that point in the story is telling her not to go with her. Now you might say that wasn't clear thinking on the part of Naomi and then her family of origin, like you pointed out, she's actually leaving them. So, so how do we see in this story, someone who's honoring a parent or in this case, a a parent in law. Right. She's honoring her parent in law, but we might say, yes, she's not honoring her parents. That doesn't mean she disrespected them or just, on them, but she had to choose, you know, to live somewhere. And it might have been because her parents were not following the God of Naomi. And I think that Ruth bought into or, you know, wanted, accepted the God of Naomi and wanted what Naomi had and what her husband had and what her father-in-law had and her brother-in-law had uh, as, as far as faith. And so she's not necessarily rejecting her parents, but she's choosing to follow the path of this God uh, that uh, Naomi and the, the rest of the family presented to her. And I really am glad we're talking about this part of the story because 
This is one of the toughest things, uh, and it's an issue in Indian country. It's an issue with every culture that I know of. You know, what happens when your child ends up embracing values that are maybe different than yours? Is that disrespecting you? A, a lot of parents would say, yes, you know, you're disrespecting us. You know, I wanted you to, you know, be a tribal council person. I had plans for you. You're going to follow in my footsteps. You're going to stay here, at, you know, live here on the reservation. And, you know, you're, li- you know, moving across country to pursue your education and you want to do something a- away from your people. I know there's often these tensions. It's not just a, a Native American tension. So how does a parent deal with that? And how does this either help or hurt the long-term, uh, well, the long-term family dynamic? Yeah, maybe before we get into how would the parent deal with it, how would the child deal with it? How did Ruth deal with it? Because uh, I think of some examples in my own family. Uh, my wife, Barbara, when she accepted the Messiah, her father said that he's not going to talk to her ever again. Uh, and he's not going to come to her if she gets married. And she wants nothing to do with her. And he basically wrote her off. And, and I was talking with a man earlier today. His family wrote him off as dead. Um, at a funeral for him and for over 25 years now, a good portion of his family have not spoken to him. So, you know, the price to pay. Now, fortunately, with my wife... Uh, Barbara's life and, and demonstrating love towards her family, it softened the father's heart and he ended up, you know, started talking to her again months and months later and then did come to our wedding after we met and then got married and, and she, he did come and he walked her down the aisle and we had a good relationship. In my own life, my grandfather was very upset when I accepted the Messiah and, and what I did in that situation, some similar other ones, poured out even more love, demonstrated more love and, and now, again, that doesn't mean that um, honoring your parents, as we mentioned in the, the fourth command, uh, third commandment, honor your father and your mother, does not mean obeying them. Hmm. There's a difference between honoring. We can honor and not obey. If they're asking us to do something wrong, if they're asking to steal, lie, we can still honor them and not obey them. And we need to obey God first and foremost, right? He needs to be our ultimate parent. But we can still love and still have to follow God and still manifest love towards our parents or anyone else, even if they're not accepting the love, even if they're not receiving it, even if they're rejecting us, we can still send Father's Day card, Mother's Day card, whether they trash it, throw it away, rip it up, don't respond, don't say thank you, whatever, we can continue to pour out love because our respect and our self-worth and our love like Joseph did not come from his brothers, did not come from his boss, did not come from his friends, it came from God. And when we have this self-worth in God's value of us, we can rise above all the rejections and all the negative problems that we go through in life. And I know a lot of my listeners are resonating with what you're saying, Jeff. Others are saying, that's not important for me to identify with the creator or God. And yet I hear you still making the same point, even if someone feels like to honor the gifts that they have or to achieve their calling they maybe need to leave their family of origin. This is not necessarily disrespecting the family, but the challenge that you're giving the kids, and I really appreciate this challenge, is to find ways to give back to your parents, to show your love and support for your elders, for your grandparents, even if you feel that whether it's a spiritual calling, a God, a creator calling you away from, from your tribe, from your people, or whether it's uh, circumstances, whatever you want to describe, that you're going to still find ways to communicate 
love, acceptance, and the fact that you haven't turned your back on those who really brought you into the world. That's right. That's right. And so we can assume that Ruth continued to love her, her family that she had to leave or chose to leave. She didn't have to, but she chose to leave to stay with Naomi. And because the way we see her demonstrate love towards Naomi and then her husband, when she gets married, her second husband, and honoring her first husband who died and respecting him must have been how she respected and honored her family back in Moab. We want to look at one last example in our in our closing minutes here, Jeff. And this is something you and I spoke about off air. We spoke about that uh, that figure that also is a name that people know across religious lines, King David, and how in his uh, home of origin, as you've studied the records about his life, it doesn't seem necessarily that he was held in that high an esteem by his parents even. Why do you come to that conclusion? Yeah, there's a, a point where the prophet in Israel, Samuel, chooses to come uh, to visit Jesse, David's father. And Jesse has all David's brothers come for this banquet this, that he's throwing for this prophet that's coming to town, this popular person in our society. And David doesn't, David's not invited. Jesse, David's father doesn't invite him. Jesse leaves his David out in the field with the sheep. I mean, couldn't they find somebody to watch the sheep that night? You know, and yet he leaves David. So he rejected David. And if that's just one occasion, and especially a high point like that, uh, why do you have his other, uh, he has seven, eight in the family or eight brothers, but his other many brothers at this banquet and not David. And then later on, when there's a war against the Philistines and Goliath there, David's brothers are fighting in the war there at the war scene. And David is sent with some food to go bring his brothers. So his father's packaged up some food, said, David, go bring this to your brothers. Obviously, that day he found somebody to watch the sheep, right? So Jesse could have found someone to watch the sheep if he really wanted to. And so he sends David with some food to his brothers. And instead of his brothers thanking him, oh, thank you for food. Thank you for bringing this from dad. Oh, wow, we really appreciate that. They say, what are you doing here? Oh, you probably came just to see the war. And who's watching those little sheep of yours anyway? You know, and so just total disrespect, which they might have gotten, probably got from their father speaking that way to David. So, yeah, David was a rejected person, rejected later on by his father-in-law. Uh, but he rose above the rejections. He didn't let human rejections destroy his life. I think that's such a great message. and It's such a perfect note to close on. Jeff, I know you've got so much more in your book, Depressed People of the Bible. Great book, uh, great discussion tools. I've, I've recommended it to a number of people. People want to go through that uh, in, in group settings. Tell us one more time how we can get a copy of the book. Yeah, you can get it. You know, All the bookstores, online bookstores have it. You can get it also directly through shalomadventure.com. That's a way to connect with me as well, shalomadventure.com. Come for the adventure, stay for the shalom. Thank you all so much for joining us on today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.